into the winter now, and we will finish up here in the next week or so. Um, there's just one more chapter after this morning. If you haven't been with us at Redeemer much or maybe ever, we work our way through books of the Bible, just kind of taking it chapter by chapter, um, big idea, big thought at a time, because it does a few things for us. One, it forces us to preach passages we wouldn't typically preach, right? It, it forces us to, to, to wrestle with, to work through things maybe we don't understand as much or we would rather avoid. Um, it also allows that if your particular pet sin comes up on a certain week, that you're not afraid you got ratted out, right? Like that it's the Spirit pursuing you, drawing this out of you as it's revealed. Um, and it forces us just to lean into passages that we're like, I'm not sure why we need this passage, right? Because it, it, we believe that all of God's Word is beneficial, that it's, that it's from Him, that it's alive, that it's ministering to us. And so it just forces some good habits. We try um, to alternate kind of an Old Testament, New Testament book so that we get all of God's counsel. And so Hebrews has been working in, through us in this regard. That what's going on is that the author is writing to a group of people who are really tempted to say that maybe Jesus isn't sufficient. Maybe I should go back to what I knew before. Maybe I should go back to what's familiar and what's comfortable because Jesus has brought some tension and some struggle in my life. Um, I'm being persecuted. I'm being, I'm being humiliated. I've had my, my property plundered because Christianity was illegal. And so they're wondering, should we go back to Judaism? Should we go back to something that society affirms and leave Jesus behind? And so the author of Hebrews has just been working week after week as we've gone through this to hold Jesus up and say, he's actually more than you think he is. He's better than you think he is. And if you leave him, there is no other salvation. And it's just worked through a lot of different arguments that have all said the same thing, don't leave. Do not forsake him. Last week, we even looked at the fact that some of the difficulty in their life is actually the, the hand of God. It, it's discipline. That, and can we trust that? Can we trust his character? That it's for our good. And so he is also beginning to wrap up his letter here. And so let's pick up in chapter 12. We'll be beginning in verse 12. And we'll read the rest of, of the chapter. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fa fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. All right, so you can begin to get the sense that, that the author's trying to try to wrap up his argument, beginning to work towards a conclusion to the letter. And really what he's saying is, listen, in the midst of trials and in difficulties, which they are currently facing, and he's not, he's not telling them that they're not facing difficulty. He agrees that they are, but he's saying, can you trust God? I want you to see the difficulty rightly and trust that even if you don't like it, even if you don't understand it, that God is doing something for your good, right? Because that's where we were last week. And this week in verse 12, we kind of see a therefore because we have to understand that God's hand is involved in this. And so maybe the, the easiest illustration here would be if you ever had a coach or a parent who you loved, who you trusted, and yet there were situations where they would ask you to do things that you did not understand the benefit, the why, and yet because of your relationship with them, you said, okay, Seems dumb to me, but I'll do it anyway. And then afterwards, you're able to look back and go, okay, I, I see what they were doing. I see why they harped on this. I see why they really leaned into this, right? Maybe it's a Karate Kid movie, right? Right, it's the wax on, wax off idea, right? Or if, you've, if you watch the new one, right, with the, the Smith kid, right, it's the hanging the coat, right? And they're, and they're doing this skill that seems absolutely redundant, utterly unrelated, and yet the instructor had a point and a reason that eventually was seen and understood. That God is saying, I want you to trust that anything going on in your life, I can use it. I will use it for good, and I'm using it to shape you, to, to remove things from you that are not good for you, so that you'll have more of me, that you'll trust me and depend upon me. And because he wants them to see it rightly, he then says, so there are some things that we're going to need to do. And so we look in verse 14, and he says this, So... Strive for peace with everyone. This first word is to strive for peace. And yet we cannot forget that they're in the midst of turmoil. There are actually people who are bringing a lack of peace into their life. That it's not just a, a nice sweet church service where he's like, all right, y'all be nice to one another. That they are being hammered in the world. And he's saying, and yet strive for peace. Right? Go, like, attempt, work, be enthusiastic for peace, even in the difficulty. Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Because they'll be called the sons of God. Paul in Romans 12 writes, as much as it is, your, is in your power, as much as you're able, live at peace with others. Which is an important caveat for us that he is not, the author of Hebrews is not saying peace at all cost. Right? Because there's a, a point where peace might look like you committing sin. Right? It might look like you laying down some of your beliefs or your core Values, And so he's not saying peace at all costs. He's saying as much as you're able, seek peace. Right? Even with those who are currently persecuting you, if you can live at peace with them, why would he ask them to do this? 
Because it's a reminder that we were all once the enemies of God, that we have warred against him, that we have hated and despised him, and yet he sought us, pursued us, and has made us not just enemies any longer, but he's called us sons and daughters. He is, his entire church is made up of those who once warred against him. And he has reconciled us and put us at peace. And so if he's done that, he says, you don't know, right, who's, what's going on with those who are currently bringing persecution. Of what God may do to stir their heart. To bring them out of this. Paul himself, right, was one who was warring against the church. Was dragging men and women off to prison. Was complicit in the death of believers. Was there and affirming of it. And warring against the church. And God literally says, no longer are you against me, now you're for me. And he saves him. So he's reminding the church that peace in this life, right, is ultimately that we're looking at peace with God. And so we can pursue that with those who currently hate us or are not for us because God has put us at peace. He's reconciled us. The second thing he's going to tell them is this. He's going to just kind of list a few things here. So strive for peace with everyone and also strive for, the ho- strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Again, this seems to come from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And ultimately, that's hopefully the cry of our heart, right? Is that we would long desire to see God, to know him. And he's saying that we need to be pure in heart. We need holiness in order to do this. In Ephesians 2, we were reminded kind of the order of salvation, which is going to be significant here. So Ephesians 2 begins with that we are dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our sins. That we are, right, following the prince of the power of the air in verse 2. Um, Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right, so he's laying out who we are is that we were opposed to God. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right, this famous and familiar passage. But if you look at verse 10, he then says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what he's saying is, listen, When you were a sinner, God, by his love, by his mercy, has rescued you. And now that you're saved, you should walk in these good works. You should walk in obedience. You should walk in faithfulness. You should walk in holiness, looking like your father who has rescued you. And so often what we do is we twist these and we say, hey, if I walk in these things long enough, God will see me and he'll rescue me and he'll he'll make me his because of look how holy and good and right I was. It's just not at all. We strive for holiness because we've been saved, not in order to be saved. That we want to look like the one who has saved us and rescued us. We want to be identified with the Father and because he has opened our eyes to see his glory. Because he has taken care of the punishment. He's just taken care of our sin and he's paid for it. That we are now free in his grace to walk and strive and put effort in looking like him and being holy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right, that he worked harder than the rest, right, but by the grace of God. That he's saying, listen, we put forth effort, and yet anything that comes about that makes us look more like Jesus 
is the grace of God, the hand of God working to shape, to mold us into the image of Jesus as we look at him. So he gives these two, strive for peace, strive for holiness, like put forth effort in this. And then he gives in verse 15, kind of a joint one. And he says, so church, see to it. He's talking to the, to the community here that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. So he's saying, look, I want you to put forth effort. I want you to exercise oversight that you're, you're caring for one another, that you are your brother and sister's keeper. That is, we are trying to get to the promised land together. We started Hebrews with the fact that they did not get to the promised land. Right? And yet that Jesus is going to get us to rest. He's going to get us to heaven together. That this is not an individual pursuit. It's us getting there together. That we are locking arms. And there will be days where you're going to need someone to lift your chin. And to lift your knee that is drooping and weary and tired. And to say, no, keep going. And then there will be times where you're the one saying, no, no, come on. He's faithful. That you're going to be reminding them and encouraging them of these things. So he's kind of giving a a collective charge here. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So he says now, how does it happen? How would it occur that we would not get the grace that's been offered to us? And he continues. With a root of bitterness that springs up and causes trouble... And by it, many become defiled. So he talks about this root of bitterness. And this phrase is actually used in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 29. Listen to what Deuteronomy 29, this is verse 18, says. Beware, lest there be among you, he's speaking to the people of Israel, his people. Lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from our God to go and serve the God of these other nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poison, poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. So here's what's going on. He's, they've been given the, the law, the covenant that God is going to be their God, that they're going to be his people. Here's how he expects them to walk. And he says, listen, there's going to be some of you, maybe a man, maybe a woman, maybe a family, maybe a whole tribe that's going to look and be compelled at what's going on in the culture to say, that looks enticing. And so I'll sit here and mentally nod and affirm everything that's being said. And yet in my own stubbornness, I'm going to walk away from the things of God. And I will assume because I've had a spiritual experience in the past where I nodded in agreement to things that sounded right and good, that I'm safe and I'm secure. That that will be sufficient. Right? And he says, but what's going on is it's, you're going to be swept away. The moist, air, the moist ground where something would grow and, and, and be faithful to God is going to be swept away. And it's going to become dry and weary and blown. And so he's going to give an example here. So he continues now. With this story out of Genesis 25 and 27 of Esau. So he says in verse 16. So that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Remember Esau was tricked really out of, out of his birthright and then eventually out of a blessing by his brother, Jacob. 
right? That he is willing to give it up for a meal because he's more concerned about his comforts and his, his situation in that moment than he is about this big thing that God has offered and given him. He's willing to give it up so easily. What's happening is that Esau is just kind of playing fast and loose with the things of God. The assumption is, is God's blessing will always be there. My access to him will always be there. And there will always be more time. That I can get it whenever I want it. Right? So the, the equivalence of this in our culture would be someone who's like, I'm going to live my life however I want. And then I'll make a deathbed confession. Right? I'll do whatever I want. Because there will always be just a little more time. And when I see it on the horizon, then I'm like, okay, Jesus, now you got me. But I got to do all the things I wanted to do. Listen to how the story continues. Verse 17. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That once his father had given the blessing and the birthright to his brother, there was nothing left to be given. That this thing that was rightfully his, he had squelched. He had gone back on because he wanted other things more. That he didn't treasure it, but he presumed upon it. He didn't value it. He didn't respond when it came. He, he presumed upon the grace of God. And in the end, what it means is there was no repentance to be found. That he missed it. And that he thought the fact that he had been born into the family was sufficient. So, so church, here's, you see what the author's doing here is he's saying, listen, as I wrap up my letters, I wrap up my book, there are some of you right now who you are nodding and affirming in everything I've written you. You're going, yeah, yeah, Jesus is good. Yeah, yeah. But in your heart, you're already saying, I think I want to walk away in stubbornness. And I'm going to continue to look the part on the outside, but my heart is going to go astray. And it's why he began it by saying this, right? That together, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And so what can happen is that we begin to be enticed by the world. We begin to be enticed by other things. And so this root of bitterness comes up that says, I should be able to have these things. And then in our stubbornness, we're like, I think I can play both sides of the field. And I can live the life I want, and I will claim Jesus when the time is right. And he says, and yet Esau missed out entirely. It's a warning. It's a warning to those who would say, I had an experience at 6. I had an experience at 16. I had an experience at 50. And that will sustain me. He's like, no, no, no. Pursue. Strive after holiness. Be at peace with one another. Cut out these roots of bitterness. Cut out these things that would lead you astray. And one of the things he tells us that allows us to do this is one another. That we have to know one another's issues enough that we can see when their chin begins to droop. When their knees begin to sag. When they begin to walk just off just a little bit. Just a little bit. And you're like, ah, they'll come back, they'll come back. You say, no, no, no. Together, we're grabbing on to one another. Together, we are pursuing after the Lord. And we're going to get there together. Right? That we're not going to allow bitterness to well up, to lead us astray. If we go back to where this began, in verse 13, he says, I want you to make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. If you've ever gone hiking in a canyon, um, in a forest, in any sort of like just natural place, there aren't straight paths. 
right? Like in nature, there aren't straight paths. You have to walk around this. And you begin to see a path that's emerged where people have taken the path of least resistance. But it's not like you walk into a forest and unless man has gone in there and done something to pour pavement, there's not a straight path. You have to, well, go around this, go under that, go over that. He said, I want you to make a straight path. What's a straight path? A path that effort has been put in. Where you've looked at the hurdles, the issues, the distractions, the things, that, the obstacles, and you have cleared a path and you're saying, this is the way I'm going. Walk with me. Right? It's why it says, let the, the light of God's word guide our steps and our path. That allows us to see the next step so that we can walk straight ahead. So that we can remove the things, the encumbrances, the weights, the sins that might distract us. That might cause roots of bitterness to emerge that would eventually lead us astray and to miss and forsake the grace that has been offered. It's a warning to his people. So, you might be asking, like the people of Hebrews were, why would we put forth the effort? Like we are having our property plundered. You're asking us to clear a straight path. Like why would we do these things when it would be easier just to kind of go with the flow of culture and at the last second, right, we we pull the chute of grace. Like, okay, Jesus, save me now, right, and hope it's sufficient. Like why would we not do that? Why would we complicate our life? And so what he does is he begins to paint a familiar passage. A familiar story in verses 18 and following. And what we have is in Exodus, as the people of God are rescued out of Egypt, as they're led into the wilderness, that God is saying, hey, I'm going to be your your God and you're going to be my people. They eventually arrive at Mount Sinai. And this is found in Exodus 19 and 20. And at Mount Sinai, they're going to receive the Ten Commandments. Right? They're receiving the law and the covenant. And God, is he shows up. And in it, it is a powerful, intense, and terrifying scene. As there's thunder and smoke, and the mountain is trembling, and God is speaking in thunder. And it says, listen, you keep all the people and all the animals away from the mountain, because if they touch that mountain as God's holiness descends, they will die. And so there's this idea of separation. We can't touch it. Of fear, of trepidation. Only Moses is allowed to go up, right? Like there's only one on their behalf who's able to go. And even Moses, look at here, it says in verse 21, indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, right? And so it's it's reminding them that this great and awesome and terrifying moment was when God gave them the law and said, I'll be your God. And yet it was scary. And so what he wants to do here as they think about death, as they think about separation, as they think about fear, that they actually ask God, don't speak anymore. We can't bear it. Like if you'll only talk to Moses, we'll take him as our mediator. We can't take it from you. We don't want it from you. And what the author here is doing is he's saying, listen, if you have this scene in your mind, I want to tell you as terrifying and as as awesome as that was, what you have in the new covenant, what you have in the gospel of salvation is far greater. Because look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, not to Mount Sinai. Mount Zion becomes this kind of symbolic picture in Scripture of, of the heavenly kingdom. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering. So what you already begin to see a different scene. It's not a mountain, right? It's a city. 
And it's not alone, but there's like this gathering, right, of, of the angels there. And so he's saying, like, you get to come into this thing. And they're not saying, and be wary, or be fearful, or if you touch it, you'll die. It's saying, come. Come into the city of God. Come to the place that you belong, into this festive gathering. Listen to verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn. This is to the church of the firstborn. This is to those who love and trust and follow Jesus. Who, in, who are enrolled in heaven, that God is there, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He's referring to Old Testament saints, right, who are waiting for Jesus to do, like to live the life they needed, to die the death they deserved, to beat sin, Satan, and death, right? Those who long for that day to come are the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, so it's painting this very different scene of saying, come, you are welcomed. The door has been, tor- like the access has been granted. Jesus has secured it for you. Come into the city of God where you will belong, where God will be with you for all time. And you're his. So he's painting, right, this very distinct contrast from fear and trepidation and people screaming, God, don't speak anymore. To the reminder that what Jesus has secured for us is access to God. Right? It's been the whole theme of this letter of like he gets you back to where you belong and you don't have to fear it. Because you were made for it. What this begins to do in us though is this. that There is a temptation sometimes I think on Sundays or in gospel communities when we gather together. That we still want to separate out between like the believers and the sinners. (laughs) To go, well, we're here because we love Jesus. That's true. But if you're a part of the gathered church, that you have admitted, I need grace. You're admitting that you're a sinner. So if you're here this morning saying, Jesus is my Savior, He's my rescuer, He's my Lord, then what you're saying was, I was in need of that. And so, it's why we would say, it's okay not to be okay. Right? Like the... That God takes those who are, who are his enemies and makes them his family. He takes those who are opposed and warring against him, who would spit at him and hate him, and makes them sons and daughters. That he draws us in. And so we gathered this morning saying, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would still be at war with God. That he's made me his. And so there will be a day where in festivity, those who were once enemies of him, who are now sons and daughters, will stand around the throne singing praises to him, feasting with Jesus who has given us access, not fearing the mountain, not fearing the word of God that's thundering on high, but his. Joint and co-heirs with Jesus of everything. And so he's, what he's doing is he's drawing this long and meandering argument that he's had through Hebrews to a close, saying the reason you put forth effort, the reason you strive for peace, the reason you put the, the root of bitterness to death, the reason you strive for holiness, the reason we lift one another's chins and we fight for this together is because there is going to be a day where we will be with God. And we will, will belong. And we don't have to fear it because of what Jesus has done. Verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator, the go-between of the new covenant, to the sprinkled blood, his blood spilled on your behalf so that yours didn't have to be. That it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Just a quick aside here in verse 23. To God, the judge of all. 
right? In, in verse, the beginning of verse 23, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This idea of, is of a list, right? It's from Luke 10, 20. It's from Revelation 21, 17, that there's a list in heaven where the names of those who have trusted in Jesus are. And that God will be the judge of those who are on the list, who have been mediated in by Jesus, and those who aren't have opposed him still. And so there will be judgment. That's why it says God is a consuming God, a consuming fire. Right? If there wasn't, a, if, if, if it was just one of those things where everyone gets in, there's no need for a list. Right? Would we be reminded this morning that you're not born into salvation? That walking through a church door does not make you saved. That being an American does not save you. That it is trusting in the grace of Jesus through his life, his death, and his resurrection that is sufficient to cover your sins and to make you right with God the Father. That is, that's it. And if you trust that, then you're his. And if you don't, even if you mentally affirm it, and yet you don't live with trust and dependence, you don't have it. It's not something to know. It's something to believe and to follow and to be transformed by. Thus, we see where this argument begins to wrap up. Verse 25. So he says, look, I want you to work hard. Right? Why? Because you've got these great rewards. So, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So he's saying this, Mount Sinai, they saw the presence of God fall. They saw terror and might. They received a covenant and law, right? And then they rebelled against it still. And their, their punishment was they didn't get to go to the promised land. They missed out on what God had promised because even though they had seen him and heard him speak, they ignored him and they sinned against him. So now he's writing to a, a group of believers and he's saying this, they ignored it. And they missed out. So church, God is speaking from heaven. Do not act like Esau and think there's always more time and reject it until the end. He's saying respond to it now. Do not refuse him who is speaking. And he continues in verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. He's talking about Sinai shaking. But now he has promised. And he quotes from Haggai 2 verse 6. Yet once more. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And so here's the picture. The creator of the universe, one last time, is going to grab creation. And he is going to shake it. All of it. And all the things that are shakable will fade away. And all that's left, the unshakable kingdom will be his, right? And judgment will have occurred. And we'll either be with him for eternity or we'll be separated with him from him for eternity. And so he's saying there's one last shaking to come. One last warning to come. So don't ignore it. Listen, we live in a world that can be shaken at its very core. Right? This week, feeling like we are teetering on the brink of war, right? And you're reminded in the security of being an American, of being, right, all of a sudden that feels like, whoa, security is a little, a little shook at the moment, right? As you think about, what's this mean for the future, right? In a moment, a medical diagnosis can shake you. 
In a moment, a tragic death can shake you. In a moment, a broken relationship, a job loss, financial insecurity can shake you. Right? And so it's why it matters deeply that Jesus has given us this word in Romans 8. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? This is what the author is saying. He's like, there will be a great shaking. And the only thing that will remain is the kingdom of God. And so you will be in it not because of your holiness, because of Jesus' holiness. And you'll be secure in it, and you will remain forever. And so, for those who are considering walking away, he's saying don't. For those who would say, I don't yet trust, I don't yet believe, he's saying don't refuse him who is speaking. Hear it. Know that the invitation is available to you to belong and to believe. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And our response, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Right? So he says, work and strive for these things. Why? Because Jesus has already secured them for you. Right? It's his holiness, not yours. And so what do we offer? Worship. Reverence. Awe. That the one who shook Sinai will shake the world, and yet he's called you beloved. He's made you son or daughter. He said, come in. You have access to me because Jesus has secured it. You don't have to fear these things. You belong to him. It is your kingdom. Lamentations 3.24 tells us that the the Lord is our portion. Right? That's where we're going to put our hope. And so this morning, maybe the, the, the question is this, is what are you putting your hope in right now that could still be shaken? That could still be removed in an instant? There's only one place to put hope that cannot be shaken, and that's in Jesus. That he is our portion, that he is our treasure, that we would trust and follow him and not be like Esau who assumed I can figure it out at the ends and missed out, would not be like the people at Sinai who would say, God, please quit talking. We don't want to hear anymore. But that we would hear and we would respond and we would be secure in our kingdom. If you've been with us over the last year, we, we spent some time in a prophetic book in the Old Testament called Amos. Amos is a hard and strong and heavy book where we are reminded of the vengeance of God, of his feelings towards sin. We're reminded of that as well at Sinai. And so when we see that that's who God is, that he's a consuming fire, would we also be reminded of the kindness of Of his that leads us to repentance. That the mercy and discipline that he brings might be severe in your life. And yet it is to bring you into lifting your eyes to see him. That he is better than anything you've been holding on to. That he is your treasure and he is your portion. And those other things are not things to be hoped in. They will be shaken free and away for all eternity. And yet Jesus says, come in. Right? 
I picture this as we looked at discipline last week and thought about ourselves as children, which is hard. But as we continue to think of ourselves that way, it's Jesus grabbing our hand and saying, I'm going to walk you to where you belong. And he's taken us into the city of God. He's taken us before God the Father, and he's saying, this is your home. This is your kingdom. You don't have to fear anything else. For I'm with you. And I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Thus, Hebrews, don't walk away from him. We would say today, thus, Redeemer, don't walk away from him. He is sufficient. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your abundant mercy. Thank you for the reminder that you are king and that you are warrior and that you are a consuming fire who is able and willing and will one day bring judgment once again. And yet for those who this morning call you Father, who have trusted in Jesus as as Lord and Savior, who trust Him, Lord, that you will keep us and we will not be shook. That we belong to you and nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. So Lord, in these moments as we sit and as we let your Spirit minister to us and as we stand and as we sing, As we respond in prayer, God, if there is a root of bitterness in us, would you shine a light on it this morning? That it would be ripped out. God, if we look at those around the room and would say, I wouldn't want to lift their chin. That we would confess the sin of that. That we would look to say, as our brothers and sisters, we want to get to the promised land together. God, that we would realize there's no drifting and there's no coasting. God, but that we pursue and strive after peace and after holiness and after you who has given us access. God, would we not get it twisted that we can earn salvation, Lord, but it is a gift that has been given, and thus we want to walk in faithful obedience because of it. And Father, for those this morning who know you, would they not ignore your word? For those this morning who do not know you, would they not ignore your voice speaking from heaven warning and calling and saying there is no sin that is out sin your grace that you are enough and that you are sufficient in jesus name amen